There is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarrely inexplicable. There is another theory which states that this has already happened. There is yet a third theory which suggests that both the first two theories were concocted by a wily editor of the Jodcast in order to increase the level of universal uncertainty and paranoia, and so boost the downloads of the podcast. This last theory is, of course, the most convincing, because the Jodcast is the only astronomy podcast in the whole of the known universe to come from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Observatory. Which has no mobile phones inscribed in large, unfriendly letters on the outside. The Jodcast, dancing on Pluto's grave, with Stuart Lowe, Megan Argo, Nick Rattenbury, Tim O'Brien, Ian Morrison, and David Alt. The Jodcast, September issue. Hello there, and welcome to the September issue of the Jodcast. Dave's a bit busy this month, so this is Stuart here standing in for him. Coming up this month, we have a tour of the Jodrell Bank control room. We have an interview with Theresa Anderson about plans for a new visitor centre. We have our monthly Ask an Astronomer, and find out what we can see in the night sky during September. But first, before all of that, there's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Pluto loses planetary status. Mars Odyssey discovers geysers on the red planet. ESA's Smart One probe heading for impact. At the International Astronomical Union's General Assembly in August, astronomers voted to demote Pluto, known as the outermost planet of our solar system since its discovery by American and Klaus Tombaugh in 1930. The rocky body now becomes one of the large members of the class known as dwarf planets, a category which includes large asteroid series and the object currently known as 2003-UB313, whose discovery by Mike Brown and colleagues last year once again brought about a debate over the status of Pluto. The vote, held as part of the General Assembly's closing ceremony on August the 24th, resulted in an official definition of a planet as a celestial body that is in orbit around the Sun, has sufficient mass for its self-gravity to overcome rigid body forces so that it assumes a hydrostatic equilibrium, nearly round shape, and has cleared the neighbourhood around its orbit. This disqualifies Pluto on the grounds that it orbits within the Kuiper Belt, a region of numerous small rocky bodies, and therefore has not cleared its neighbourhood. Not all astronomers are happy with the decision, and the debate is likely to continue. You can hear highlights of the vote in the Jodcast interview feed on our website. NASA's Mars Odyssey probe has discovered evidence of geysers on the south polar cap of the red planet. A cap, made largely of carbon dioxide ice, which freezes out of the atmosphere during the southern winter, has been imaged using the Thermal Emission Imaging System, or THEMIS, an infrared camera on board the Mars Odyssey spacecraft. The images, taken over more than 120 days, show spots appearing on the ice, with associated fans of darker material appearing from days to weeks later. These fans are thought to be caused by dust particles carried up into the atmosphere by the force of the eruption, and falling to the ground some time later. The scientists who made the discovery, Hugh Kiefer, Philip Christiansen, and Timothy Titus, suggest that the carbon dioxide ice sheet begins to melt at the base, building up pressure which is eventually released when the ice ruptures at a weak point, 
sending a high-speed jet of material upwards a few hundred feet into the thin atmosphere. After a highly successful mission, the European Space Agency's Smart One spacecraft will impact onto the lunar surface on September the 3rd. After launch on the 27th of September 2003, the probe tested a new ion engine, reaching the Moon in November 2004. As well as the new engine, intended for future interplanetary travel, Smart One tested other technologies for long-range communications, autonomous navigation, and miniaturized instrumentation. Intended to collect science data for six months, its operations were extended by a year after early successes. The impact will now occur on the near side of the lunar surface on September 3, 2006, and is predicted to occur at 0551 GMT at a latitude of 36.44 degrees south and a longitude of 46.25 degrees west, or because of uncertainties in lunar topography, at 36 minutes past midnight GMT at latitude 36.4 degrees south, 43.5 degrees west. More up-to-date information can be found on the ESA website at www.esa.int. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, as Megan mentioned there, we were following the General Assembly with a special series of interviews that covered several of the topics under discussion, as well as blow-by-blow accounts of the proposed planet definition and the final vote. All of those are available on the website at www.jodcast.net in the IAU special section. Of course, one of the topics that made the most headlines around the world was the subject of Pluto and whether or not it's a planet. Our roving reporter Lisa, who you might remember from earlier on in the year, managed to get the views of some of the astronomers before they went into the final discussion and vote. So what do you think about the uh, planet resolution proposals? I think it's a resolution that's come before its time and should uh, be tabled once again because there's no great urgency to to determine the definition before extrasolar planets are included. That's my personal opinion. Non-astronomer. Uh, I don't care much about the planet resolution per se. Um, uh, arguing this much about the definition does not add anything of scientific substance. The real point is that um, uh, there is now a continuum of, of, of objects and the term planet has no useful purpose. So do you think the public should perhaps know about our other activities and the vast majority of things we're doing, um, what's happening in the symposia and so on? Dead right. So do you have any views on the um, resolution today? Well, I just feel it's a bit early to, to define these things. I mean, especially defining a planet should, should take into account all these things, all the discoveries which were made with the extrasolar planets and have something coherent between our system, our solar system and the other ones. So do you think maybe the committee should take some longer time and come back to Rio, the next IAU symposium? Yes, that's exactly my point. So do you hope uh, that this resolution is successful? Uh, yes, I, I hope uh, so. Uh, but I think that uh, it's uh, difficult uh, to get uh, a decision uh, because uh, the expect uh, are uh, a lot, uh, are a lot point of view, and so uh, depends on uh, from uh, do you watch the problem. Yeah, so you think it's important for the public to know what a planet is? Uh, for the public, I think yes, because uh, they need some um, um, 
clear uh, information, clear idea. Uh, and do you think it's important for science as well? Uh, for science, uh, yes, because uh, also in science uh, you have to um, classify things uh, to have uh, um, a clear idea on what you are working about. And do you think that extrasolar planets should be included in this? Yeah, because the planets that, uh, have to be a definition uh, like stars that uh, uh, should be valid all over the universe. So, so do you think the uh, resolution should be successful today? Um, in part, it will probably be successful, but I'm not sure that all the sub-resolutions will be will pass. Uh, what in particular do you think will be a, a contesting point? Um, I think the differentiation between um, what is a planet and then these other definitions of classical and dwarf planet um, will, be, will be contended because I think we're trying to decide what a planet is and uh, by referring to the, class, the, the eight planets, larger planets as classical planets and the others as dwarf planets is sort of a, it sort of suggests that there are two sub components to the class of planets, and I, I think that will probably be, be rejected. And I think some people in the public will um, think it's quite confusing as to whether everything that is called a something planet is indeed a planet, is that a subclass and so on? Right, that's, that's, that's the point. I think what we need is two distinct names. We need a name planet, decide what that is, which will probably be the eight major bodies that we have in the solar system, and then those things that aren't just space rocks, those things that are larger, will have to have a distinctly different name, not just a, the same name planet but with an adjective put in front of it. I think it'll be confusing if it stays that way. This committee's been um, going for about a year and a half trying to decide this, and then they seem to have come back um, in a week and changed it eight or nine times. So what, what do you think about that? I think it just shows that there was a rather small group working on it to begin with, and now that they're getting the full sort of assembly uh, the, all, the, all the views of the full assembly that uh, they're, they're realizing that they needed to get more of it, more, uh, um, how do you say, opinions from a larger, larger body. So I, I, think, I think they're doing a good job. I wish there was more time for the people's opinions to be expressed into the, the final definition, but it seems like there's a lot of pressure to come to a decision now and do it quickly, especially with the, with the media <laughs> seeming to come down on it and make such a deal, big deal about it. So it's democracy in action then? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> We're glad to live in the free world. Thank you very much. Okay, so what do you think about the idea of uh, defining a planet today? <laughs> well, we need a definition, obviously. So, uh, but I'm very curious and a little bit anxious about what comes out of this vote. So do you think the process has been a little strange? We've had a year and a half of committees and then it's changed a number of times this week. Do you think that's good or a bad thing? What surprises me is that this committee has been working on it sort of secretly for a long time and then suddenly this past couple of days we've seen many changes and that makes it a little bit hastily, so to say. Yeah, I think the idea was to, to keep it from the, the press because obviously there's a lot of interest uh, from all of us but uh, I think that uh, perhaps the democratic process could be stretched out a little longer. Yeah, well, obviously a couple of... Uh, a couple of people have even suggested to postpone the discussion to the next General Assembly in three years from now in Rio. But I'm, I'm happy that won't happen. So there's some of the views. Let's find out how the vote went. Uh, we will now take the vote on Resolution 5A. It is, of course, a scientific matter. 
and this will be a vote by individual members. So will those members in favor hold up the yellow card? Let's get a quick check. Uh, those against, we'll count if necessary. Those abstaining, then I believe the resolution is clearly carried. So there we have it. Pluto is now a dwarf planet along with Ceres and possibly 2003 UB313. However, there are still a lot of unhappy people. There's already been a song complaining about Pluto's demotion, and a group of planetary scientists and astronomers from around the world have started a petition to reinstate Pluto. It sounds like this debate is going to rumble on. OK, now a bit closer to home. Jodrell Banks' Lovell Telescope has been on the BBC News website in the last few weeks. It's been part of the BBC's Unsung Landmarks competition. Now we've got Tim O'Brien joining us to tell us a little bit more up-to-date news. Yeah, it's very, it's very exciting actually. The, what the BBC done, they'd run a competition recently where they'd taken photographs of famous uh, sort of cityscapes or whatever, where they'd removed a famous landmark and then asked people to try and spot what landmark it was that had been removed. Were they able to do that? Uh, I think they were finding difficulty. I think that was the problem. Because <laughs> you basically what the idea was, you just didn't recognise that scene without that landmark and therefore you couldn't work out what was missing. So on the back of that, they came up with this idea of an unsung landmark, uh, which was you know something in the local area that local people were very aware of and, 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 and had become a landmark for them. And they asked the public to nominate various landmarks from across the UK. And obviously some local people were kind enough to nominate Jodrell Bank. It wasn't you then? It wasn't me, no, no. It was actually Steve Jones from Poynton was the person who was quoted on the BBC website. So... Uh, yeah, so we, we, were, we were in that. We were one of the, lo one of the local landmarks nominated there. And we actually topped the regional poll, which was the North and Scotland, which if anybody is aware of the British Isles, the North and Scotland is a, a pretty huge swathe of the, <laughs> swathe of the country. But anyway, we topped, we topped that area. And we had um, competitions such as the Runcorn Chemical Works, I think. Yes, the Runcorn Chemical Works is quite spectacular, actually. I was, I'm not surprised yeah, well, it was a local landmark. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so no, we, we beat some esteemed competition and, uh, and we got into the final. Uh, there were eight regional landmarks then in the national final, so it included places like the Humber Bridge, which is the, uh, the suspension bridge across the Humber estuary, um, the New Seven Bridge, there's a couple of bridges in there, included Crystal Palace Transmitter in London, um, some airship hangars, which are quite interesting, in Bedfordshire, so when, when airships were popular, some huge hangers that are still in existence there's so, a so, sort of variety of things anyway it turns out we won oh we well <laughs> we cut to the cut to the chase as of uh, well the, the vote closed on on wednesday august the 30th and we actually obtained 21 percent of the popular vote We've spoken to the people at the bbc website they've contacted us just literally within the last few hours to tell us that nope it's official we've won so Good by stuff. the time you hear this that will probably be official on the BBC website, so there should be some sort of article about Jodrell Bank, hopefully, on there. Uh, so we'll have fame and fortune, then? I think uh, possibly not the latter. <laughs> In my experience, astronomy very rarely brings you fortune. If shame. you've seen the car I drive, you'd be aware of that. Um, so, yeah, it's a pity. Well, I was I mean hoping we might be able to buy some new microphones for the Jodcast. <laughs> If you've listened to the Ask an Astronomer section, I think you, yeah, maybe we should try and get get public donations to buy his new microphone. No, I mean seriously, um, we're 
very proud actually that the public have voted for us in this way. I mean, we're I think we are pretty well known, poss possibly worldwide actually, for the for the for the, our work in astronomy, for our research in astronomy. But the Lovell Telescope itself really is a landmark. It's sort of been towering above the Cheshire Plain now for almost 50 years. Since um, 1957. 1957 was when it was completed, and, and as you may be aware, it was uh, really heralded the dawn of the space age because uh, Sputnik was launched in October 57, and the telescope here was the only telescope capable of picking up a radar uh, return from the, the rocket that took um, Sputnik into, into space, so it became world famous on the back of that. Um, and that the, the 50th anniversary therefore is next year, so we're planning a series of events to celebrate that. So this is sort of interesting that this has come at this point. It's sort of enabling us to, you know, we can really use this as a uh, to kickstart our our sort of uh, publicity for for the 50th anniversary, I think. And you never know. I mean, I said it unlikely to bring us fortune, but uh, but one of the one of the major projects that I'm very involved in and is to renew our visitor centre here at Jodrell Bank. Um, we had one of the world's first science centres, actually, um, begun in the 1960s, and it's now in need of a, of a complete redevelopment, really. Um, so that's a project that, again, on the back of this sort of publicity and, and, and the 50th anniversary, we, we hope we can, we can get moving on that very soon, actually. Well, we've got an interview with Theresa Anderson later on in the Jodcast about the developments for our visitor centre. Um, but first, I think, given all the attention that Level Telescope's got, and we'll send Megan to interview one of the controllers. Okay, I'm here in the Lovell control room with Mark, this evening's controller. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Megan. So, what exactly does a telescope controller do? Well, our job is essentially to look after the safety and safe operation of the telescopes. Okay. And that, that's the, our number one concern. All right, and how many telescopes do you actually monitor from here? We monitor nine. Nine altogether? Yeah, altogether uh, from the giant 250-foot Lovell telescope right down to our 7-metre student research telescope. That's the teaching telescope? That's correct, yes. Right. Often used in the distance learning experiments. Right. So from here, obviously, we've got the big windows where we can see the Lovell telescope. The rest of them you can't actually see, so how do you actually monitor what's going on with those? All the positional uh, and safety information is relayed down telephone link-wise. So there's a modem at the far end, modem at this end, computerised information spread down those lines and displayed on a series of monitors at the right-hand half of this room. And from those monitors, we can look in fine detail on all the telescope functions. One of the monitors gives an overall picture on what the remote site telescopes are operating, how they're operating, what object they're looking at. All kinds of details are sent back, not only the position of telescopes, but things like wind speed and direction, barometric pressure, so we can keep an eye on, on the weather. You can imagine one, one of our greatest concerns is the effect of wind speed on the telescopes. So how do you measure the wind speed? Locally, we have a 150-foot mast, which has an monitor on the top that measures the wind speed at 150 feet. There's a backup system lower down at 45 feet should the first one fail. All the remote sites have a similar tower of varying heights. They have their own anemometers, their own, effectively their own weather station on every site, and all that information is relayed back to Jodrell. So in some ways, depending on the wind direction, you can use the remote sites as an early warning of high winds. Right. So when you say remote sites, how far away are the other telescopes? Well, the first is Cambridge. That's, that's the, the furthest baseline we operate. 
and the closest one is uh, the Mark II. That's the one across the field. That's just the one across the field. Okay, so if the wind gets up at one of the other stations, how do you know about it from here? What's the first thing that happens? Should the wind speed increase at one of the outstations, there will be an audible alarm and there will be an accompanying visual alarm. And that will draw the controller's attention to a high wind situation at that telescope. You would then bring up further display screens which would give you the average wind speed, the direction and a, a record of the peak wind at that site. You would then be able to make a decision, can operations continue or if the mean speed goes above 35 miles per hour, operations would cease and the telescope would be parked pointing straight upwards. Right. And that's the safest position for them to be. That's in. the safest position for them to be. Yeah. Okay. Also, the, the telescope's azimuth would be aligned so that the, the bowl axis was pointing into the wind, and then the, the, the wind would have uh, the least effect on bowl movement. And you just keep an eye on the wind speed, and once it drops again, you can start using telescopes again. Yeah, we have we have a rule where the telescopes would would always be parked for at least an hour should a wind a high wind situation develop. After that hour, uh, you can assess assess the situation and if you think it's safe the controller would make the decision to start the telescopes again. So you said there was a, a visual alarm. We sat here right next to the main control desk which has got all sorts of buttons and gadgets and things all over it. Should we go around the desk and explain what all the bits are? We've yeah. got well there's two dials and a LCD screen yeah. on the left hand side. Yeah. The, 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 the first one is a miles per hour readout of the measured wind speed at 150 feet. From the tower. Yeah, that's correct. The tower holds the 150-foot uh, monitoring equipment, and on our, on our left here we can see the wind speed, and next to it the wind direction. Right. The smaller screen, the LCD screen that you, that you referred to, is an instrument which is, is on top of a 45-foot mast, and that's our backup. It also enables you to, to, to measure the wind speed at two different levels, but sometimes the, the higher level... Uh, high-level measured wind can be significantly greater than that, that at 45 feet. Right. And how does the height of that mast correspond to the height of the telescope? Well, how high is the telescope? Unfortunately, the, 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 if the telescope was, was tipped on its edge towards the horizon, that mast would only reach halfway. So there's a bit of mathematical interpolation required. For instance, if we phone the Met Office and we get a wind speed forecast, they will give us that, that speed measured in knots. So instantly we would have to convert to knots and we'd also have to make an allowance for the fact that they will forecast wind speeds at the surface and we're interested in the wind speeds at 150 to 250 feet. Right. Often we will discuss with the forecaster what their estimate would be at that point. The little noise we just heard in the background is an indication uh, from the master clock and it says... It's 2030 universal time, which is a little audible reminder that uh, a half hour is struck. Okay, so next to the, the wind monitors, we've got a little panel with lots of lights on, and lots of buttons, and one of them is flashing. Now, because the big telescope has effectively an acre of wind-collecting surface, that's quite, that's quite a lot, it would be very vulnerable to wind damage should we operate it in incorrect wind speeds. So we have a three-stage alarm system locally that makes sure that the controller is constantly aware of the wind speed. Now, the light you're referring to means that in the past ten minutes 
we have had a gust which has taken the wind above 25 miles per hour. If I press this button now, that light will extinguish and you can see that that alarm has now been cancelled. Now, should the wind speed go above 25 miles per hour again, that alarm will reactivate. Before we go on to those, I'll just explain that we have another alarm at, at 30 miles per hour and another one at 35 miles per hour. It's so you get a staged warning of, uh, of wind speed increase. The other alarms refer to the outstation telescopes. There is a set of alarms for wind speed, one for each telescope, and they operate in the same way as the one I've just described. There's also a master alarm panel which would, set, would alert the controller to a fault condition. For instance, motors had tripped out. The computer would send a signal to this panel and trigger an audible alarm, and then the controller could take appropriate action to rectify that problem. Okay, so in the, the middle of the desk yes. is a big screen. Well, at the moment, that screen is indicating the telescope azimuth and elevation. This is for the Lovell telescope. This is for the Lovell telescope. The panel you're looking at is one of the control computers for the telescope. Essentially, instructions for the position of the telescope are sent to this computer. They are then relayed to the control system on the telescope. And this panel is duplicated on the telescope. So should this machine fail, the computer on the telescope will take control and the telescope will still be able to be moved. We have an additional completely manual backup and above it. You can see there it says manual rate unit, and should we need to, we can drive the telescope completely by hand. So there are occasions when the controller will sit here, and on these little buttons and switches, you can manipulate a structure at 3,500 tonnes at the end of your fingertips. I presume you don't have to do that very often? Not too often, mainly for engineering purposes, for instance. We recently had a situation where we had to repair part of the telescope structure, and I remember sitting at this desk, being given requests for movement over the radio while engineers were next to part of the moving structure, and they would look for the damaged part of the wheel girder, and I would position it according to those instructions given over the radio. And, and rather than type in different positions, it's far easier under those circumstances to turn an analogue potentiometer. Also, should all the computers fail, the telescope can still be put back in a safe position in an emergency. Before we move to the right, there's a very important button right in the centre of the desk, and it says emergency stop. It's a big red button. It's very appropriate. Yeah. And, of course, more important than the safety of the telescope, and certainly much more important than the observations taking place, is the safety of personnel who may be working on the telescope. And should anyone get into a position of peril, about to be run over by the telescope, that button will stop the telescope and as you can see it's got a little safety guard over it so it isn't accidentally pressed but that's a very important button and we can't stress how important that is moving over to the right we see uh, a backup display of telescope azimuth and elevation so in the event of a computer failure we still know where the telescope's pointing uh, you need that because should systems fail you need to know where to move the telescope to put it in a safe position because it's possible to move the azimuth in the wrong direction in an emergency. Because, if you think about it, the telescope is connected to the ground by cables, and those cables run through a loop turner. Because the cables are fixed, the telescope can't continue to rotate indefinitely. So at some point it's got to stop and go back around in the other direction. Correct. Uh, and it would be dangerous to 
try and move the telescope further into that limit zone should high wind speeds be encountered. So immediately below those displays, we can see the telescope master key. The telescope will not operate without that key inserted. So when personnel are in dangerous positions on the telescope, that key will be taken away and locked in a key release system so personnel can work in complete safety. So they know the telescope's not going to move? It can't move, that's correct. To the right of the master key is perhaps one of the most amusing buttons, and I also press it so perhaps we can hear this. Telescope siren. And before the telescope would, would be moved after a, a period of, of it being left stationary, that button would be pressed to alert anyone who happened to be on the telescope, and that would warn them that the telescope was about to move. So move, moving on from the master key, the next panel to its right contains the controls for the hydraulic lock system, which in the event of high winds would lock the elevation movement in the zenith. Big steel fingers on the telescope lock into slots in the wheel girder and the telescope is locked safely in the vertical position. What I didn't mention is that the control desk I'm sitting at today is the original 1957 control desk. The instrumentation has been replaced. I think this is the third generation of, of new instrumentation on the telescope. Right. But the desk is still 1957 and it has that wonderful solid... 50s over engineering feel. Sounds pretty solid. Yeah, it's pretty solid, and, it, and it's, <laughs> it's a well-designed piece of equipment. Lasted pretty well. It's lasted pretty well, yeah, and it's nice to see it having survived nearly 50 years. Another responsibility of the controller is to keep a, a, a written logbook, a bit like a ship's log in, in some ways. Uh, and the controller, when he starts his period of duty, will sign the book, take responsibility for the telescope, and record. The telescope's operation, any incidents, any unusual occurrences, and this keeps a, a, a full and complete written record so that we can always refer back to incidents that have happened. And these have been filled in every day since That's the telescope good. started operations? That's correct, and we have a huge archive of all, of all, all the logs, and it, it's very interesting looking back. So how many controllers are there? There are six controllers, uh, and we share a 24 hours a day, seven day a week shift pattern. So there's always somebody in this room keeping an eye on telescopes. Yeah, this room is occupied every day of the year. Even over Christmas in the year. Yes, yes, and someone draws the short straw and is here on, at midnight on New Year's Eve. <laughs> and, it, and in some ways it's, it, it's quite fun to do that. All right, you, you, might, you might miss your New Year's party, but there's something quite, quite exciting. You watch the, the master clock tick over to zero and the New Year begins and it's, uh, it has its compensations working over New Year. Behind me and to my left is the, what we refer to as the station master clock. Right. Now, because the Earth is turning, and we want to position the telescopes looking at stars which have an apparent motion, we need a time reference so that the computer can, in effect, wind out the motion of the Earth. So, to all intents and purposes, the telescope looks in a fixed direction and the Earth turns underneath it. So, you might also be able to hear... Birds. I don't know if they're going to come out on the on the recording, but there are quite a lot of birds um, twittering away at the moment as it's just going dark. Um, so I guess you see quite a bit of animal life. Yeah. Yes, because the telescope is situated out here in the Cheshire countryside, we're surrounded by what really looks like a very nice park, surrounded by trees and grass. There's plenty of wildlife about, 
I've seen, well, of course, the, the place is, is covered in rabbits and squirrels. Lots of rabbits, and yes. Like that, and a few pheasants have seen around today. Pheasants we've got as well. There's uh, at least three ravens that, that, that seem to have taken up residence. The most interesting thing, thing to watch is, is the birds of prey. We have a pair of peregrine falcons, uh, and they, they hunt and, and use the telescope as, uh, as, as a perch. Kind of a lookout. Go, yeah, and, and, and you'll see them fly off the telescope and, and, and fly down and catch their prey. Not, sometimes you see them take pigeons. and It's, it's like your own, uh, your own little window on nature. One evening... It was particularly uh, nice to see a barn owl flew, flew past the window. And uh, very few of my colleagues would believe that I'd seen such a rare bird. And it reappeared a few weeks later. And one of the astronomers, particularly keen bird watcher, grabbed him as he was about to go out the door. Said, Come and look at the barn owl. I need you to confirm it's here. And we saw it again. Fabulous. Beautiful ghostly bird. The telescope in the background. Great view. Thanks, Megan. The controller is a job with a lot of responsibility, but they get a great view of their office window. OK, so now it's time for everyone's favourite, Ask an Astronomer. Over to you, Nick. All right, now it's time for Ask an Astronomer with Dr Tim O'Brien. Thanks again for answering the, these questions, which are a step above our usual sort of questions we have. Oh dear. Oh dear. The first question comes from Andrew, and the question is, I've heard the moon is slowly moving away from the Earth. Will it one day float off into space or collide with the sun? Interesting question. But yeah, absolutely, he's absolutely right. The moon is moving away from the Earth. Um, the average distance from the moon to the Earth is about 385,000 kilometres. But that separation is actually increasing at a rate of about 3.8 centimetres a year. So small, small distance, small, but yeah. uh, still yeah. measurable. And well, as a percentage of the distance to the, to the moon, it's certainly a small change. But in fact, you know... We, we can all imagine what 3.8 centimetres is. It's, it's not unimaginably small. And in fact, it's interesting how that's measured. The first person we think to, uh, to make an estimate of the distance to the moon was a guy called uh, Eratosthenes, an ancient Greek who did it using sort of shadows and sticks and wells and so on. People can read about that if they like. Um, but these days, we've, we've improved the accuracy of the measurements quite a lot. And the, and the, the technique actually relies on using reflectors that are placed on the moon and they were placed there by uh, mainly by the Apollo astronauts mm -hmm. so it's a nice proof actually that, the, that we did actually go <laughs> to the moon <laughs> they did actually land on the moon yeah because yes. we left these they, they left these things called retro reflectors behind which are positioned so that you can basically fire a laser beam from the earth um, onto one of these reflectors and then this thing it sort of bounces back off the reflector uh, and we pick up the sort of reflection from it and we time how long it takes the signal to get to the moon and back and therefore because we know the speed of light we can we can work out the distance that's how the most accurate measurements are made um, and in fact the, the sort of current most accurate system um, is actually uh, its name arises from Apollo it's the, they use the acronym Apollo which is a which is Apache Point Observatory Lunar Laser Ranging Operation Super. Not, not at all contrived <laughs> um, and uh, it's actually the Apache Point Observatory in, in America it's actually run by the, the University of um, California at San Diego and they're actually hoping to make measurements that are accurate to a few millimetres Wow. because the, the, the problem is there's a problem to do with you know you can imagine you send this laser beam all the way to the moon and as it as it goes, it sort of spreads out. It's quite large when it hits the moon. I think it's something like seven kilometres or so across when it actually hits the moon. Mm. And then reflect, so part of some of those photons in that laser beam reflect, hit the reflector and come back towards us. And by the time they get back to the Earth, 
it's something like 20 kilometres across right. sort of pool of light that's been reflected so you can imagine all these photons are spread out the signal is, is very very faint they must um, use a very powerful laser to yeah yeah it no it's, it's very interesting some very nice pictures of it on the web actually and yeah. mm. we should stick some on our Jodcast website as well to go with it but the uh, yeah the, so the signal's weak and things like the atmosphere and so on cause a bit of a uh, cause uncertainty in that signal but yeah this 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 most recent setup hopes to measure uh, measure that to an accuracy of a, of a millimeter or so which is incredible really now we mentioned that actually this, the the distance is, is is increasing by by several centimeters a year 3.8 centimeters a year on average um, and that's largely due to um, the sort of tidal interaction between the, the moon and the earth so the moon raises tides in the in the oceans although it does actually distort the shape of the solid earth as well slightly right. but it's mostly affected by the it mostly affects the oceans obviously being fluids they're more easily distorted so you get these sort of tidal bulges that rotate around the earth as the earth spins um, and that sort of you get tidal friction which slows down the earth's rotation um, by maybe a few milliseconds every every hundred years and uh, and it also sort of it, it, it takes energy away from the Earth's uh, rotation, sort of puts it into the Earth into the Moon's orbit. So it turns out that the orbit of the Moon is increasing um, by, by that amount every year. So gradually, the Moon is drifting away from the Earth. That's true. So what's happening here is that the the tides moving around the Earth are slowing the Earth down. Is that mm. the idea? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So and in in also speeding the moon up going yeah. around its orbit well it's actually the, the orbit the orbit actually the size of the moon's orbit increases um, so I think we've defined that the, the moon is moving away from the earth um, the question was was it going to drift off into space and collide with the sun the answer to that is probably not I mean if it kept drifting away from it gradually if you look at how long it would take for it to drift a long way away from the earth at 3.8 centimetres a year it's not going very far very fast right um, so it's not likely to sort of drift off and crash into the sun I mean at some point if you could imagine this happening if it was happening faster I guess you'd lose it, it'd eventually get taken over by the gravitational pull of some other planet or, or the sun it'd end mm. up in orbit around the sun you know rather than in orbit around the earth but that wouldn't the rate it's happening this is so far in the future the, the, the sun would have expanded to become a red giant and incinerated the earth and the moon anyway by that point I think so, right. so nothing nothing particular um, to, to worry about there I mean just as a just going back to these laser ranging reflectors that, that, that sort of measure the distance of the moon the reason they're wanting to get this high precision is not just because of trying to understand this interaction between the moon and the earth it's actually to test general relativity as well, which is you know Einstein's theory of gravity. Right. So to so it isn't isn't just a technological you know, no, trick no. or something fun yeah, to do. Yeah. No, it is a proper physics experiment. So mm. hoping to basically find the point at which maybe Einstein's uh, theory breaks down, and you have to make these measurements with in, with incredible precision to do that. Mm. Very good. Well, thank you very much for for that answer. I hope that answers the question. I think it does. Next question comes from Mike in the U.S. He noted that uh, in a previous episode of the Jodcast that many stars in the universe are cooler than our own sun. And he's curious to know whether we know how many stars are larger and how many stars are smaller than our sun. Okay, so this is interesting. I mean, I've done a little bit of research to, to find out the answer to this question, but I must admit I haven't. I haven't. I probably don't answer his question entirely fully, but uh, <laughs> well, hopefully this will help a little bit. Um, basically, there's sort of uh, the way to do this, the, the common way this is done, and where my statement in the earlier Jodcast came from, really, is to look at something called a, a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, or sometimes a colour magnitude diagram, where you, you, you sort of look at the sky, you look at a sample of stars, and you measure the brightnesses, 
which is the magnitudes in, in, in sort of traditional visual astronomy. Um, and you look at the colours, which basically means looking at the sort of ratio of brightnesses at two different wavelengths. Look at right. look. And then what you do is you take those measurements, so for each, each star you've measured its colour and you've measured its brightness, and then you plot one against the other. So you have a graph that sort of shows you brightness on the vertical axis against colour on the horizontal axis. And traditionally you have brightness with the brighter things at the top, um, and you have colour with the, with the redder things at the right and the bluer things at the left of the mm. diagram. Now, you know, when this was originally done, it wasn't really clear what this all meant. Uh, and when you do an experiment like that, you might be disappointed. You might think, OK, I'm going to make these measurements. I'm going to make this, draw this diagram. You might be a bit disappointed to find that what you get is something we call a scatter diagram, right. which is all the points just scatter randomly across this plane, and it's not taught you anything at all about, right. about the things you're studying. That didn't happen in that case. When that diagram was first made by Messrs. Hertzsprung and Russell, they found you didn't get a scatter diagram. In fact, 90% of the stars that they looked at lay in a diagonal line across this diagram. We call that the main sequence. Mm -hmm. And we now know that's the sort of, basically because stars spend 90% of their life burning hydrogen to helium at the cores, and, that's, and they, they lie along that line. So that's where most of the stars sit. That's where most of the stars sit, yeah. And the sun is so r roughly in the middle of that. It turns out where you lie on that diagonal line is all to do with the mass of the star. So the higher mass stars are hotter and brighter, and so right. they're at top left of this diagonal line, and the lower mass stars are cooler, redder, and fainter, so they're at bottom right of this line. So the question really is asking to quantify a little bit where we are along that diagonal line, I mm. guess. Now, if you do that experiment, for example, if we sat here with a telescope, we could do it ourselves from our back gardens, uh, maybe with a little CCD camera or something, <laughs> like, um, and make these measurements ourselves, we'd probably pick, you know, maybe a hundred stars or a thousand stars or something. If we went round the sky picking, say, the thousand brightest stars, then what you'd find, in fact, is your results were biased. And they'd be biased because um, the thousand brightest stars would actually select some of the intrinsically brightest stars. So these might be stars that are sort of seen a long way away across the galaxy, and they're intrinsically bright because they're sort of big, typically. Mm. Um, like red giants are, you know, are quite bright because they're large, or, or also because they're hot. The hotter a star is, the brighter it is. And that's a bias because what you want to do is you want to answer the question and say, well, what's the, you know, typical um, properties of a star? Not not these sort of extreme objects mm. that are incredibly bright you see a long distance away. So what you really want to do is you want to say rather than pick the thousand brightest stars, you want to pick the thousand nearest stars. Let's say. Right. That would be a, a less biased observation because then you just all you're doing then is you're saying, okay, the bias in that sense is they're the stars closest to the sun. Mm. and maybe you'd be unlucky in the region closest to the sun in the Milky Way might be unusual for some other reason, chemical composition or something. But you like to assume that the, the nearest stars are just a, a, a typical mix of yeah, stars. Yeah, that's right. So it's a sort of random selection because it just happens to be where the sun is. So that's the best thing to do. And in fact, what I've done, just to try and answer the question and quantify it a little bit, what I did was to take from the Hipparchos database, Hipparchos was a satellite that measured um, the positions of stars very, very accurately, um, it also used this thing called parallax. Mm -hmm. Don't really want to explain parallax or not. Probably, pro possibly not. Maybe, maybe another time. Maybe another time. <laughs> we'll discuss what parallax is. But it's, it's essentially a measure of distance. Isn't yeah, it? Usually it's a very accurate way to measure the distance to something. So we got the distances very accurately, which means you can then work out their intrinsic brightnesses very accurately. Because the problem is, if something's farther away, it looks fainter. Mm. So if we get the distance very accurately, accurately, we can get the brightness very accurately. Accurately, sorry. 
So what we do then is we can sort of count the number of stars against their actual brightness. And because their actual brightness relates, as I've said, to the size and the temperature, that's basically answering the question that we've been asked. What I did was look at all the stars within 10 parsecs of the sun, which is sort of uh, 30 light years or so of the sun. So this is a region of space relatively close to the sun. And I got something like 30 stars being brighter than the sun. Okay. And about 130 stars or so being fainter than the sun. Right, so roughly four times mm. as many stars mm. are fainter than mm. the sun. Mm. Mm. So that brightness, that, that faintness, d is, a, is, a, is a function of both the size and the temperature, actually. Right. So, you know, it's, I haven't disentangled those two things, so I haven't fully answered the question, but I think it's, you know, it's a reasonable start. It just shows you that, you know, a good, a good proportion more stars are fainter than the sun than are brighter than the sun. Right. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, no problem. Thanks, Nick. If you have any questions for Nick and Tim, you can contact us via the website at www.jodcast.net. Or you can leave your question or comment along with your name and where you're from on our new Jodcast voicemail. The number, if you're in the UK, is 0161 408 1442. Or if you live outside of the UK, you can try Skyping us at The Jodcast. That's all one word The Jodcast. As ever, we look forward to your feedback. Now, if you've been to Joddle Bank in the last few years, you may have noticed that our visitor centre is quite a bit smaller than it was. As Tim mentioned earlier, there are plans to revamp the current visitor centre. Earlier, Nick talked to Teresa Anderson to find out more. This is great. Thank you very much for coming along and, and having a chat with us. So, just explain a little bit about yourself and what you intend to do here at Joddle Bank. Well, my name's Teresa Anderson, and I've been with the University of Manchester since January this year. And my job at the moment is to look at the development of a new visitor centre here at Jodrell Bank. You probably know, and probably your listeners know, that there was a visitor centre here that the university demolished in 2003. And since then, it's planned to put up a new visitor centre. It hasn't quite got round to it yet for various reasons, not least the fact that it's recently... Uh, merged with UMIS, so it's been it's had its eye taken off the ball a bit <laughs> by that. Why has there always been a visitor centre at Jodrell Bank since uh, since the beginning? Uh, not since the very beginning, but when the Lovell Telescope started operating in the late 1950s, people were very very interested in it and basically almost climbed over the fences and broke through the gates to come and have a look. And the astronomers who were working there at the time took pity upon all these people and started to give them tea on the lawn and things. And uh, following that, the university decided it really ought to cater for visitors and for the great interest that people have in Jodrell Bank and the Lovell Telescope and put up what was effectively one of the first science centres in the whole world in the 60s. And of course by 2003 that had got a bit old and ramshackle, so we really did need to take it down. And now we've got plans to have a look at putting something quite interesting in its place. What was part of the the visitor centre just before it got demolished. What was here? Well, there was a, a display which covered quite a lot of things. It was quite um, a, a diverse display in the end. Originally, the display showed information about astronomy and the heritage of the site. And then as the years went by, more and more uh, science interactive exhibits were brought into the space. And we, of course, had a planetarium, which was very popular at the time. So it was quite a mixed bag, really, and had a nice big cafe and things. And people used to come for quite a long distance to come and see what was on offer. At the moment, we do have 
an interim centre. It's a, a small space for visitors that's um, effectively housed in what used to be the restaurant in the old visitor centre. So there's still something here, but there's not the planetarium and there's not the interactive thing. We have some quite nice information, some nice old photographs of the telescope being built and some nice old newsreels and mm -hmm. um, films of what went on. And, of course, we do also showcase some of the astronomy that goes on here at the moment as well. Plus, you can also walk around the, the Mark 1 telescope as well. There's yeah. There's a little walkway which you can view, yeah. view the telescope at various angles. It's very nice. Yeah, there's a new walkway, in fact, which just was opened um, a couple of years ago or a year or so ago. And, uh, yeah, that's really nice. And In fact, because oddly, because the old visitor centre was demolished, visitors actually have a better view of the Mark 1 telescope, or Lovell telescope as it's now called, and you can walk right round it and look into the dish, and there's a nice little viewing platform at the end, and um, there's some interesting information boards saying things like how many double-decker buses you can get into the dish. <laughs> <laughs> I forget how many that is. Vital <laughs> <Bible> information. Yes. <laughs> so what's your role in um, the generation of this new visitor centre? Well, basically, I'm the project manager, so um, this means that I'm the link between the university steering group for the project. The steering group is the, has been set up by the university to oversee the whole project, and it's chaired by the dean of the Faculty of Engineering and Physical Sciences, which, of course, is the faculty within which Jodrell sits, and um, has representatives from each faculty of the university on the group, plus representatives of Jodrell Bank and our cultural assets portfolio. So it's a really wide-ranging group and shows the commitment that the university has right across the whole of its uh, constituency to getting a really exciting new centre here. So my role is to basically keep the links between the, the steering group and tell them what they need to know and basically carry out the tasks that we need to do to get the visitor centre scoped to start off with, get the vision sorted out, and then to think about how we might progress it. Right. So it's not just a, a small group of people in, say, the physics and astronomy department. No. This goes across a, a lot of the science faculties in the university. In fact, it goes across all the non-science faculties as well, so it covers the whole university. And in fact, there's a quite our plans or our hopes are that we put together something which is, in fact, quite radical in that it um, cites uh, a science as part of culture rather than uh, the other way around. Often when you go to museums and things, you see um, arts, things with a bit of science bolted on. And in fact, something that's quite interesting here is the university has an opportunity to do something really innovative and look at science and culture as a whole and how we approach it as a society. So it's, it's quite an exciting thing, really. And it's fitting, really, to cite that at, um, at you know, somewhere where you carry out cutting-edge research. This isn't something that normally happens on the site of science centres. And obviously, as well, when we're talking about looking at science from the point of view of, of astronomy, it's one of the few areas of science that doesn't scare the life out of people. <laughs> so there are controversies about it, like there are about certain other areas. You, know, you think about things to do with GM and the life sciences mm -hmm. and MMR and various other things that have... And perhaps even, um, you know, the rise of creationism is something that's, you know, something that perhaps here astronomy is seen as a bit of a neutral ground upon which we can actually look at these really important issues. Yeah, that's interesting. So the whole university has got some interest uh, in, in the new visitor centre and perhaps a stake in it, but... Who's going to pay for it? Is the university itself going to pay for it, or is there going to be funding from... Where, where's the money going to come from? Well, that's always a key question for universities, and, uh, you know, in this particular case, this project's uh, no exception to that sort of worry me for the university. And I think 
Um, one of the things that we've, we're mindful of as a steering group is the university really in this, in this sort of current climate of funding for higher education does have to spend its core budget on core activities. So it's, it's unlikely that it's going to take money away from either teaching or research activities to fund the visitor centre. But that said, the university does have partnerships right across the region. It's a, it's a key cultural part of the whole of the northwest region. And I think there are ways forward for, for us that don't necessarily mean that we have to take money from those key budgets within the university. And the university has obviously put a lot of time into it, which you, know, you can cost up when you look at the number of people and senior people within the university who have already committed a lot of time and energy to this project. I think you can see that there's a lot of commitment behind it. So we perhaps won't see money taken away from people's teaching or research budgets to fund this, but I think we will see a, you know, a strong commitment from the university. Private sponsorship, uh, industry? Any possibilities? Yeah, I imagine that we will probably be looking at those things, and I think uh, already we have a lot of people queuing up and saying that they're very, very keen to be involved, so it's a matter of working out how to do that in the way that's best for uh, the university and for Jodrell Bank, really, and, for, and then in a way that meets the needs of our visitors and the people who we'd like to inspire, really, the new generations that we want to kind of bring through and engage with science and let them see the excitement and the possibility um, of pursuing science as a career and you know I'm a bit biased because I did physics myself but I'd quite like to see a lot more people interested in doing physics. Absolutely <laughs> and, we're, and we're told that uh, you know the, the number of students taking up uh, physics or certainly the, the so-called hard sciences at school is yeah. always always a question always interesting to people to see if you know the numbers are dropping or if they're holding steady or if yeah. they're increasing so it's, uh, it's important to get the people studying these subjects at school and I suppose these visitor centres these science centres where kids interact with stuff does form part of their, their early experiences. I think it does and I think in a way Jodrell Bank is, is perhaps unique amongst those in that it isn't just another science centre parked on a former industrial site, it's actually a place where there's a world class facility and there are world class scientists doing really exciting stuff, you know kids can stand here and be aware of the fact that signals are arriving in the telescope that started off the day that they were born mm, or mm. before then and perhaps get some grasp of the enormity of what happens here. And it isn't just something where they'll go inside and, and look at interactives and bash them around a bit. It's something where they can look up at this massive big instrument and say, what's that doing then? Yes, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, and it it's sort of opens out the questions and starts... I mean, for me, you know, my journey as a scientist can probably be dated back to the day when somebody asked me when the sky was blue and I thought Where, why is it blue and I never really got an answer but it didn't have to start me asking <laughs> questions which I think is the journey that we need to get people started on. It's early days yet for the visitor centre there aren't many plans exactly in any detail for what we're going to have but can you talk about anything the ideas which have been thrown around for, for yeah. various I, for, for various buildings or... Uh... Yeah, well, we've got some ideas to do with um, how we open up the scope of the centre. And I think, you know, one of the key things is that, obviously, this is a key heritage site for UK science and world science, in fact. Uh, and this is a grade one listed architectural edifice as well as being a scientific instrument. So, I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah, it's grade one listed. So the university is obliged to you know, maintain it in perpetuity, which is a, you know, it's a mixed blessing because mm. it's, a, it's a big um, responsibility for the university, but it's also an honour to do that. So obviously the centre is going to have to reflect to some extent the heritage of the site, 
And also, the key, you know, exciting thing about this particular site is its world-class science is carried out here. So obviously, we'd like to showcase that. But we'd also like to see um, uh, the new centre as an opportunity to showcase other world-class science and other world-class research that's carried on as a university. So we're thinking very much in terms of a core um, anchor exhibition, which is linked to the, the former, um, the, the history of the site and the astronomy that carries on here, but also looking at um, major exhibitions that showcase other research within the university and perhaps the work of, you know, when we get round to attracting our Nobel laureates, which is in our plan, mm -hmm. <laughs> that we showcase their work and perhaps have events which, at which they can speak to the public, the public can meet them and things. And so again, it's not, it's not just going to be physics and astronomy no, and mathematics. It's going to be... It's going to be wide-ranging, cross-cutting issues. And, you know, these days, science centres really, you know, we're looking at what science means for us, what is research, what, you know, what are the impacts of it, what ethically can we do within society, what is for the greater good, where's the good place to direct resources. I mean, these are kind of key questions which really spin out of doing fundamental research, and not only in the sciences. So it's an opportunity, really, for people to come and ask the questions that perhaps, you know, they feel they can't ask normally. You know, think, and, oh, I couldn't ask that. It sounds like a daft question. But mm, in fact, yeah. there's no such thing as a stupid question when it comes to these kind of issues. And there are certainly be, stupid answers. There <laughs> are certainly a lot of them around, but it would be interesting for people to, to feel that this is a place where you can come and ask questions. What's your feeling on, how, on what people want out of uh, a visitor centre, like the one planned here at Jodrell Bay? Well, I think it's always a mixed bag. I mean, partly people come because there's that big thing in the landscapes, mm -hmm. and they come out of curiosity, and, and the sort of very human response, we all have to big things in the landscape, like the Angel of the North or whatever, you know, we sort of think, oh, that's a bit funny, let's go and have a look at that. Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of quite visceral human thing. I think, you know, speaking personally, in terms of a good day out, we need a good cafe, we need a nice shop, we need good parking and loose, and, you know, all of those very basic things that can um, perhaps not make your day out brilliant, but can certainly ruin it if they're mm -hmm. not right. So mm -hmm. we need to sort of get all those things right. And I think also um, we need to think about things that are quite exciting in terms of um, giving uh, people family days out. Uh, and so we need to think about content that appeals to children as well as to adults. So our exhibitions need to be quite content rich and we need to think about the best practice really that's around in the field and, and um, setting up uh, displays and exhibitions and also events which really, really engage people. I know that there's a really strong um, desire on the part of visitors to have something that replaces the planetarium, so that's kind of quite high on our list, that people would be, would be quite interested in that and perhaps a modern version of a planetarium, you know, sort of 3D immersive facility, so we're kind of thinking about that as well. And also, this site um, has a really good, um, really interesting arboretum, mm. which currently is underdeveloped, so I think that would be quite an interesting thing for us to explore. And also, um, it, it's something that allows you a little bit more distance from the telescope and allows you to sort of appreciate it from a little bit of distance, so it would be nice to kind of weave in our sort of perception of where we are in space and time with exactly you know what's happening on the planet and how the trees are affected by what we do to the planet and other scientific things. So I think, you know, there's, a, there's quite an interesting and um, diverse thing that we can offer to people when they come here. There are a number of interesting points there which are in, in some way connected. Uh, being out in the middle of the Cheshire Plain, a long way away from Manchester, um, obviously, and any other major town, is why Jodrell Bank is out here in the first place. But it also makes a, a good family day out, you know, something which 
could be quite difficult for some people. I mean, if, yeah. if, they, if, if they only have one trip on the weekends, they get the kids in the car and they drive to a place, they want to be sure that they're going to have a good day out and it's yeah. going to be a reasonable length of time they can spend here. So it's not as convenient as your uh, museum in the centre of the city. So no. um, having a broad range of things for, for people to do when they're yeah. out here is going to be more important than it would be for a city-bound yes. uh, museum because if the kids get bored, then you can just take them off down the road to yeah. McDonald's or something or whatever else. There's something else to stimulate the yeah. <laughs> or keep them quiet. Here, they've got to have, you know, as you say, everything um, for a good day out. Yeah. We've already been talking to quite a lot of the tourism experts in the region about how you do that and what's the best uh, recipe, if you like, for a good family day out. And they are very much contributing to our thinking on this. And, you know, you're right, you know, when, when you're in a city centre, it is easy to hop from a museum to McDonald's or whatever. But if you talk to the museum people themselves, they are also quite keen on increasing the length of time that people stay within their walls because, of course, in order to keep... Uh, a museum or a science centre ticking over, you do need people to spend money on the side. Yes. That's a sort of uh, hard fact, I'm afraid, these days. So, you know, you do need to make sure that your restaurant's quite nice and you know, the, the shop's good and that there are play areas and there's things to do if it's raining and things to do if it's not raining and things like that. So we are thinking very much in terms of not only the fact that people can come here to have an opportunity to do something that's maybe inspirational and perhaps educational for, for children and for adults, but also have a nice time. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so where are we at the moment? Well, we've... Um, as I mentioned right at the start, I've been doing this job for about six or seven months now, so we're sort of basically six or seven months in, and we've had uh, quite a few meetings with the university steering group, and I think we've got to a point now where we can say we've agreed uh, the framework within which we're going to take things forward. So um, we've agreed this vision, if you like, for the new centre, that it's going to be this, have this anchor that's related to astronomy and the heritage and the research that's carried on the site at the moment, and also have this uh, amazing new showcase for research, for science and other research, um, which, you know, is, is going to be a bit of a signature project for the whole region, I think. You know, there's mm -hmm. certainly quite a lot of interest in it for the region as a whole. So we've sorted out broadly what the, the, the Sort of the, the ethos, is. yeah. yeah. Right. I think we know what we would like to achieve with it. And the next stage now is to think about... Um, how many people we'd like to come. So we have a vague idea. It's an interesting question because you know, yeah. when you ask these questions of, of people and you think, well, as many as possible, yeah. we want all of England to come to, to this place. But well, it's not quite as simple as that. Probably not quite as practical as it is. It, you know, it's, you've got to think about things like um, the capacity of the roads and mm -hmm. you know, the, the fact that actually this is a scientific instrument that needs to be in a radio silent zone. So you know, if we can minimise the number of mobile phones that are on around the area, that's good. And, uh, you know, there are various um, uh, other things that you can take into account. We've taken a lot of advice, and I think probably we're going to be looking for something that's a little bit over the peak numbers that uh, we had here at one time. So we're probably about 150,000 a year, which makes it a mid-range tourist attraction with the option to make it a bit bigger if that seems to be um, a sensible thing in the future. Although, you know, the sensible thing really is to phase what we do here and, um, you know, see how it operates, uh, not only in terms of finances, but also practically. So we're going to be looking at 
uh, getting uh, facilities in place that can cater for perhaps up to 100,000 to start with, which is not, not vastly different from what we have on site at the moment. And if you start looking at you know, having the whole population of the UK come, there's a lot of things you've got to think about, like planning, um, how you look at traffic, all sorts of things like that, which you know, perhaps then uh, start to have a detrimental effect within the region. And you really have to work out the point, you know, which is a trade-off between attracting a load of people and annoying a load of people yes. as well. I suppose there is, I mean, the, the, the concept of build it and they will come is, you know... It, so Bernard did build the telescope and they did come and they still do come because mm. of the telescope. So we have 60 to 70,000 people who come every year just because of the telescope, really, because our visitor provision on site really isn't anything in itself to attract people at the moment. And people just come because of this amazing scientific instrument anyway. So, you know, in a sense, um, the visitor centre always has to be a response to that and a sort of a, um, be very respectful that people are drawn to this site because of that. And really, you, you don't set up something in competition. You set up something that works in harmony with that. Is there a time frame or a goal for completion of the visitor centre? There's not at the moment. We're hoping to get a business case in place by the end of the year. And we are thinking in terms of a business case rather than just a funding plan. And then that has to go to the university board and they have to think about how they would like to take that forward. So we're hoping that it'll be the next two or three years. We're, we're kind of, you know, if all goes to plan, that'll be uh, what we're thinking in, in terms of... Great. Thank you very yes. much indeed. We look forward to having you back on the Joycast again to see how progress is, is going along. Thanks very much. Thanks, Nick. All of us at the Jodcast really do hope those plans come to fruition. Now it's time to find out what you can see in September's night sky. Well, what can we see in the September sky this year? Well, one good thing, of course, in a way, is that the nights are getting longer. We don't have to stay up quite so late to look up at the heavens if it's clear. There's quite a nice skyscape in the late evening sky, over fairly high and towards the west, we have the constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. The three brightest stars, Deneb, Vega and Altair, form what's called the Summer Triangle. And that's a very pretty region of the sky. Just below Cygnus, if it's a clear and transparent night, you should see the rather sweet little constellation of Delphinus the Dolphin. Just a few stars, but it looks rather pretty. Towards the south, and fairly high up, is the square of Pegasus. Pegasus is the winged horse, and seen from our northern hemisphere, it's upside down. If you look at the square of Pegasus and see if you can see any stars within it, it's actually a good test for the transparency, how clear the sky is. If you can see half a dozen stars within the square of Pegasus, then it's pretty good. But sadly, often, you'll see none at all. Starting at the top left-hand star of the square is a good way to find M31, the great nebula in Andromeda. Essentially, you go two stars around to the left and up a bit, then you turn sharp right and move one star and then the same distance again in that direction, and you should see a fuzzy glow. Easily seen with binoculars, but if you know where to look, on a dark night, even with your unaided eye. Above M31 is the constellation of Cassiopeia, a W. And in fact, if you take the three lower stars 
down on the right of Cassiopeia, they can act as a pointer that points down to M31 as well, another way to find it. Towards the east from Cassiopeia is the constellation of Perseus. This whole region lies along the Milky Way of our galaxy, so it's very rich in stars and also star clusters. A pair of binoculars, if you sweep from Cassiopeia towards Perseus, should show the double cluster to rather lovely little groups of stars nearby in the sky, seen probably best with binoculars or with a telescope at low power. So, in fact, quite a nice autumn skyscape for you to have a look at. If we move on to the planets, it's perhaps not quite such a, a good month, really. There's only really one planet visible easily in the evening sky, and that's Jupiter, which is low in the southwest before sunset. But our view will not be very good, even though it has a magnitude of minus two, because it's rather low above the horizon. So that's getting increasingly hard to see as the month goes by. It's actually in the constellation of Libra, but it's really not the best month to observe it. Now Saturn has actually moved around the sun. In fact, it was behind the sun on August the 7th. So it's now going to be appearing in the pre-dawn sky. It rises by the end of September, some four hours before the sun, so it will be fairly visible in the morning sky by then. And I'll come back to that in a highlight of the month we'll come to at the very end. So that's Jupiter and Saturn. Mercury, in fact, passes behind the sun on September the 1st. That's called superior conjunction. It might just be possible after sunset by the very end of September, but it sets only 45 minutes after the sun, so it won't really be very easy to see. Wait till October. Mars, to be honest, is lost in the evening twilight, setting just 20 minutes after the sun at the beginning of the month. I'm afraid we have to wait till it appears in the pre-dawn sky in a few months' time. Venus is still visible before dawn in the east-northeast. It's been at rather low declination, in fact, lower than that of the sun, so it doesn't actually rise very high in the sky. It's not been nearly so obvious as it sometimes is. But it rises 75 minutes before the sun at the beginning of September, but that's actually reducing due to the month. So I'll come back to that again in a final highlight we'll come to in a few minutes. Now, there are a couple of things that it perhaps is worthwhile having a look at, perhaps two highlights of this month. Many of you have probably never actually observed the planet Uranus, which is even visible to the unaided eye if you have a very dark, transparent sky. At the moment, it's actually fairly high in the south, near to the fourth magnitude star, Lambda Aquarii, which is in the constellation of Aquarius. Um, the way to find out where it is, actually, is to find the night sky page I write for the Jodrell website, and there is, in fact, a chart showing you exactly where to look for Uranus. Basically, pick it up by binoculars or a small telescope, and uh, if you can then see it with binoculars, and if it really is a very dark night, you've got some chance to see it just with your eye, because it's about 5.7 magnitude, and under a dark sky conditions, an eye could see slightly fainter than 6th magnitude. So try that. It could be exciting. It's not something I've seen very often myself. Finally, I talked about the planets, some of them being visible in the morning sky. On September the 6th, Venus gets very close to 
the star Regulus, the bright star in the constellation of Leo. It's, in fact, within a degree on the 6th of September. So it might be worth looking out for that if you've got a good eastern horizon. And then up to the right of both Venus and Regulus, you'll see the planet Saturn. And again, there's a star chart showing you their disposition on the Night Sky website. So I hope you enjoy the longer nights to observe with. And uh, although the planets perhaps aren't best placed this month, then there are many other things to look for. Good hunting. Thanks, Ian. And if you want to find the charts for locating Uranus, you can find them via the link to Ian's Night Sky pages on this month's show notes. And on that point, I'd like to mention that each month, the show notes do include links to websites that give more information on the things that we mention. It's well worth checking out. And with that, we've reached the end of the show this month. Remember that you can get in touch with us via the website, www.jodcast.net. You can also leave us a voicemail by calling 0161 408 1442 or by Skyping the Jodcast. And as Dave is away, it's up to me to say thank you to Megan Argo, Ian Morrison, Tim O'Brien, and Nick Rattenbury. And of course to you for downloading us. The intro and outro is provided by Dave Alt, who was the voice of the guide. No attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which of course remains the property of Douglas Adams. We hope you'll join us next month when we plan to talk to the creators of Astronomy Picture of the Day. Until then, I've got a nice relaxing cup of tea to look forward to. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Will Pluto ever be allowed into the Planets Club again? Will the International Astronomical Union be ever more plagued by debate over the status of big lumps of rock going around a small, unregarded yellow sun far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy? Will David get his job of editor back after relinquishing it for one episode? Find out, if you can, in the next exciting instalment of The Jodcast. Many sentences contained in that programme were of a very dangerous length and were performed by highly trained vocal practitioners. On no account should inexperienced life forms attempt to imitate them without proper medical jaw and lung supervision.